You're listening to Sunday Sermons from Christ Pacific Church, located in Huntington Beach, California. We're cultivating a community of faith, hope, and love that follows Jesus into the world. Hi, my name is Peter Little. Thanks for joining our podcast today as we continue our series called A New Humanity, Walking Through Jesus' Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. My name is Linda Hewitt, and it is my joy to uh, share with you the scripture this morning. We've been going through Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, the Beatitudes. That's Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. It's a responsive reading. So when you look up on the screen, I'll be reading the white words, and then when the red words come up, we're all going to say them together. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the word of God. No one can come face to face with Jesus Christ and not begin to take on his character and his convictions. That's my conviction this morning. No one can come face to face with Jesus and not begin to take on his character and his convictions. An encounter with Jesus Christ never leaves us the same, which shouldn't surprise us, really. Think about it. I mean, what what do you think is going to happen when you meet the creator of the cosmos who did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited for his own benefit, but rather he emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that you and I could enter into everlasting life. What did you think was going to happen when you had an encounter with that guy? No one can come face to face with Jesus and not begin to take on his character and his conviction. Can you imagine meeting somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. and walking away unchanged? What would it be like to meet, I don't know, Mother Teresa or even Mahatma Gandhi? I mean, there's no way that meeting these people wouldn't have an enormous impact on your life. So how much more an encounter with the living God in flesh, Jesus of Nazareth? We're walking through the Beatitudes this fall And these Beatitudes are qualities that you and I begin to take on or exhibit when we have an encounter with the living God, with Jesus Christ. 
The Beatitudes really are qualities that describe both the character and the convictions of Jesus of Nazareth. So they are also the qualities that describe people who have been encountered by Jesus, people in whom Jesus has begun to do his gospelizing work. So let's recap a little bit where we've come so far in the Beatitudes. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Contact with Jesus makes us poor in spirit. In light of the blazing glory and the perfect holiness of this God in the flesh, we realize how far we have fallen from glory and how much we are indeed not perfect, how spiritually bankrupt we are before the Lord. When we come in contact with Jesus, our eyes are opened to the reality that we are empty-handed before God and we bring nothing with which to impress God or purchase our salvation. When our eyes are opened to this kind of spiritual poverty, when we realize that we need Jesus more than anything else, then we hear Jesus say, blessed. Congratulations, you get it. You're in sync with the creator of the cosmos. You are aligned with the kingdom of God. Jesus says in the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn. Contact with Jesus opens our eyes to the way that the world could be under the reign of King Jesus. And we mourn when we look around and we see that the world, in fact, is far off the mark. Our eyes are open to the truly glorious human beings which we were created and redeemed to be. And we mourn because when we are honest with ourselves, we see that we, we are not yet who God created and redeemed us to be. And when our eyes are opened and we mourn what ought to be but isn't yet, when we hope for what is to come and we realize that it is not yet here, then we hear Jesus say, blessed. Congratulations, you get it. You're in sync with the heart of the gospel. You're in alignment with the kingdom of God. And then we hear Jesus say in the third beatitude, blessed are the meek. Because contact with Jesus makes us meek like he is meek. Meek not weak. Meek as in humble. Meek as in not needing to get one's way. Meek as in assured of oneself apart from the approval of others. Meek as in trusting the Lord enough to not seek revenge on our assailants. And when we stop demanding our own way, Jesus says, blessed. Congratulations. You get it. You're Heart is aligned with the gospel. You are in sync with the kingdom of God. And then we hear Jesus say, blessed are the merciful. This is the fifth of these eight beatitudes and our focus this morning. Blessed are the merciful. And in this fifth beatitude, it seems as though we've kind of turned a corner. 
We've turned a corner into more concreteness. Blessed are the merciful. You can see mercy. You can see mercy in action. It's measurable. It's more concrete than the other Beatitudes so far. It's more concrete than the idea of spiritual poverty. It's, it's, we, we can understand and measure mercy more easily than we can understand and measure what it looks like to mourn or be meek or to be spiritually poor. Mercy is active. In mercy, Jesus is talking in part, at least, about doing stuff. And we call that stuff acts of mercy. So let's talk about mercy this morning. What is mercy? What is Jesus saying when he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy? What is mercy? We can talk about mercy both positively and negatively. Positively, mercy is, <clears throat> mercy is giving someone what they do not deserve. To pardon someone's debt is to give someone something they do not deserve. We can also think of mercy negatively. I don't mean negative as in bad, but just as in uh, absence. We can think of it negatively. So mercy is not giving someone something that they do deserve. So in a court of law, for example, to not give the sentencing that a criminal deserves because of his or her actions is to show mercy on that person. It is to not give them what, in fact, they do deserve. But what is this mercy? What does it look like? What does it feel like? How do we see it? When do we know we're experiencing it or giving it? I think it's best to let Jesus explain. Let's let Jesus explain what mercy feels like through a couple of his parables. The parable of the Good Samaritan, which is a story of kindness to a man in need who perhaps didn't deserve it. And then also the parable of the unmerciful servant, which is a story about pardon to those in debt. These are both parables of mercy told by the Lord of mercy who makes you and me practitioners of mercy. So let's take a look at him. First of all, the Good Samaritan. This is probably Jesus' most well-known parable, right? As you know, the story involves a man who is lying in a ditch beside the road. He's been robbed, beaten, and left to die. And in that parable, we usually assume that the man is innocent. That the man who's been beaten and left on the side of the road in the ditch is innocent. We usually assume that, but is he? Do we know that? The reality is in Jesus' parable that this man who's been beaten may have been robbed and beaten because he failed to pay his debtors. The robbers may have been seeking revenge for some injustice that this man had previously committed. We don't know if he's innocent or not. Jesus doesn't actually tell us that. We don't know if he's personally culpable for his own misfortune. But here's one of the most astounding things to me about this parable. The good Samaritan does not ask the man why he has been beaten up, robbed, and left to die on the side of the road. The good Samaritan never asks that question. 
How often do we discover someone in need? I'll just be more personal. How often do I discover someone in need? Do I come across someone who clearly has a need? But first, at least in my mind, I need to determine the cause of this person's need so that I can decide whether or not it would be appropriate for me to extend help or mercy. The good Samaritan does not need to know why. The merciful, like the good Samaritan, simply see a need and then they find creative ways to meet the need. The, mercy, the merciful, they rarely perform a risk-benefit analysis before extending mercy. And extending mercy is a risky business, yet mercy does it anyway for the sake of the other. The good Samaritan, think about it, he risked his time with the man in need. This good Samaritan spends a good deal of time without any guarantee of any kind of return on his investment. Right? Is he going to get anything out of this? Probably not. It doesn't matter. He extends mercy. It also costs him money. The good Samaritan provided for the medical services and housing for this man who was in need. But most importantly, I think, the good Samaritan risked his reputation to help that man who was in the ditch. In that culture, it would be likely that the Samaritan, if and when he was seen in the ditch with the man who had been beaten, it would have been assumed that the good Samaritan was, in fact, responsible for lynching the man in the ditch. But more subtly than that kind of loss of reputation, what if the man in the ditch is known as a really bad dude? The Samaritan is risking his reputation by associating with him. This was in a culture in the first century Palestine and in a world in which you either made it or you didn't, based almost entirely upon your reputation in the community. Extending mercy was pretty risky for this guy, the Good Samaritan. But he saw a need and he found creative ways to meet the need. This is what mercy looks like. This is what mercy feels like. And isn't Jesus, isn't Jesus the ultimate Good Samaritan? Jesus risked his time, his resources, and most significantly, his reputation to show kindness to we who are in need. And what did the religious people have to say about Jesus? They said, this man welcomes sinners and even eats with them. You know, it sounds like a compliment to us. Like, wow, what an amazing man Jesus is, right? He welcomes sinners and he eats with them. And we do think of that as wonderful because it is, but it was meant as an insult. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. His associates are losers, so he must be a loser too. Showing kindness to those in need cost Jesus his reputation, at least among the religious people. But Jesus saw a need. This is what mercy looks like. Well, let's consider Jesus' parable to the unmerciful servant. It's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 18. And as the story goes, a servant owed his master something like $6 billion in today's 
U.S. dollars. Uh, the point is that the debt is utterly unpayable. And the master in this parable cancels the debt. The guy owes his master $6 billion and the master cancels his debt. Mercy. This is pardon for a debt that someone could not repay. The gospel is that the Lord has canceled our debt, that the Lord has canceled a debt that you and I could not pay. And Jesus does this at a tremendous price to himself. Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe because you and I owe a debt we could not pay. Someone has said that. It wasn't me, but I'll say it again. Jesus came to pay a debt he did not owe because you and I owed a debt we could not pay. The parable goes on. The servant who had just been forgiven his $6 billion debt was uh, refused to pardon a debt that somebody else owed him, a debt that was something like a few thousand dollars. The parable, the whole parable is meant to be ridiculous. It is meant to make the hair on the back of our neck stand up. It is meant to frustrate us. It's a picture of someone forgiven an enormous amount of debt, a ridiculous amount of debt, a debt that he could not repay. And this same person who could not find it in himself to extend even a tiny fraction of that kind of debt forgiveness to somebody else. And again, the gospel is that the Lord has canceled a debt we cannot pay. And that this freedom from debt begins to work its way into our hearts and out through our hands in the form of mercy towards others. If we are genuinely praying, Lord, have mercy on me. Lord, have mercy on me then that mercy begins to move us in the direction of mercy toward others. And when we genuinely pray, Lord, have mercy on me, when, when our minds and hearts are wrapped around that, that reality that in Jesus Christ, mercy is accessible to us, and when that mercy begins to invade our hearts and get extended out through our hands, then we hear Jesus say, blessed. Congratulations, you get it. Your heart is in sync with the kingdom. You get it. One final comment as I wrap things up here. Extending mercy to those who do not deserve it is very difficult. When Jesus says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, Jesus is not saying that before God shows us mercy, we must show mercy to others. Jesus is not saying this, and we know this because that doesn't resonate with almost everything else Jesus says and everything else that we read in the scriptures. Jesus is not saying only if and when you show mercy will then God show mercy to you. That's called salvation by works. That's called you and me impressing God so much that he has no choice but to extend mercy to us. That is not what Jesus is saying. We know that Jesus isn't saying this because the Beatitudes begin on this note where Jesus says, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. A 
think Jesus begins there on purpose. Blessed are you who know that you are spiritually bankrupt. Blessed are you who know that you, you bring nothing to the table with which to impress God. Blessed are you when you realize that. Blessed are the beggarly poor. Blessed are the spiritually bankrupt. So we know that Jesus isn't saying that God will show you mercy if and only when you show mercy to others. So what is he saying? What is Jesus saying when he says, blessed are the merciful for they will be shown mercy? Well, I'm indebted to Daryl Johnson, one of my seminary professors, Presbyterian pastor for uh, several decades for the following insight. If we are asking God for mercy while refusing to extend mercy to someone else, we are not, in fact, asking God for mercy. We're using the word mercy. We are saying, Lord, have mercy on me, but we are not actually living into the reality of that word if we are refusing to extend mercy to another. How can I simultaneously say to the Lord, Lord, cancel my debt, which I cannot pay, but do not cancel his debt. If I refuse to forgive you, I'm implicitly saying that you must first pay the debt that you owe before we can engage. You've got to pay up. You've got to right the wrong. And when you do, then we can talk. How can I come before the Lord and plead for God's mercy while not extending mercy to another? If I go into the Lord's presence with this kind of attitude, then I demonstrate that I am not living into the reality of mercy. To withhold mercy to others in that moment means that in that moment, I've lost touch with the gospel. I've lost touch with the unmerited grace of God's forgiveness in Christ that has been given to me. If we are genuinely praying, Lord, have mercy on me. Pay a debt that I cannot repay. Then that mercy begins to move us in the direction of mercy towards others. Now notice that I say, moves us in the direction of mercy towards others. This kind of mercy that we experience from the living Lord, I'm not sure that it radically overturns all of our tendencies to not be merciful overnight. I'm not sure that it creates in us these wonderfully perfect, merciful people who, who are showering acts of mercy all the time. To me, it seems like it's a process is that process at work in your heart, in your mind, in your life? If I'm genuinely asking the Lord for mercy, then that mercy begins to move me in the direction of mercy towards others. And when that happens, we hear Jesus say, blessed. Congratulations, you, you get it. You're in sync with the heart of the gospel. You're aligned with the kingdom of God. This is what I think Jesus means when he says, blessed are the merciful, 
for you will be shown mercy. When you come in contact with Jesus, you cannot help but begin taking on the character and convictions of Jesus, who is the good Samaritan, who is the Lord of mercy, who is the one who extends mercy to us in the form of payment for a debt we could not pay, in the form of acts of kindness that we did not deserve. And the invitation of the gospel is to receive this mercy. And having received this mercy, to begin to grow in the direction of becoming a conduit of that mercy towards others. Mercy comes into our hearts and it comes out through our hands. Blessed. Congratulations. You get it. Now, I know this is really difficult territory to think about having mercy towards those who don't deserve mercy, extending forgiveness to those who maybe have not even asked for forgiveness, to have mercy on those who have hurt us terribly and wronged us terribly. This is difficult territory. And so what I want to do is I want to lead you through a time of prayer. I want to lead you through a kind of visioning prayer exercise. And so I'm going to invite the music team uh, to come forward and be uh, prepared for us as we engage this prayer exercise. This is only going to take a couple of minutes. I'm going to ask you to do some really, really difficult things. But it's only for a minute. Allow your imagination to come with me in this prayer exercise. So I'm going to invite all of us to close our eyes. And the reason I'm inviting you to do that is so that everybody can be sure that nobody can see you. So no peeking. And I want to invite you to imagine. Imagine that you are in Jerusalem. Imagine you come upon a hill where they have crucified Jesus. Can you see him up there on the cross? And the two thieves on the crosses next to him? I invite you to walk up that hill. Imagine you kneel before the cross. Jesus is looking at you. Can you see his eyes? Will you now tell him where you personally need mercy? In this moment of silence, will you tell him now where you personally need mercy? Now imagine you see out of the corner of your eye the person that has hurt you. He or she has come up this hill as well, but is afraid to come any further because you are there. 
I said this was going to be difficult. It will only last a minute. So will you now, as an act of your will, will you turn toward that person and motion him or her to come and to join you before the cross? Just motion them to come over and join you before the cross. Invite them to come close to the cross. And will you, with that person kneeling beside you, will you tell Jesus everything that person did that is so hard for you to forgive? And now will you say, Jesus, have mercy on him. Jesus, have mercy on her as you have had mercy on me. Now look back into the eyes of Jesus. Can you see his eyes? And hear him say to you, blessed. Congratulations. You are in sync with my heart. Go in peace. Jesus, thank you for your transforming presence. Thank you for your merciful presence. Thank you for your healing presence. Continue your work in us, we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. For more information about Christ Pacific Church, visit our website, www.cpchb.org, and follow us on social media at Christ Pacific Church.